For so long, what I'm going to talk about today, for so long, I was missing out. I thought that I had this certain part of my life figured out. This certain part of my life that I'm going to talk about today and preach about today has always, has always been a part of my life since I was a kid. There was nothing in me that felt like things were out of place in this area of my life. It was something that up until recently, uh, I, I, I didn't fully understand, and I still don't fully understand it, but up until this point, I, I thought I had it figured out. This part of my life was always full of good intentions, but it was mostly empty without me even realizing it sometimes. It's not something I can go back and change per se, but it's something that I have tried to change as of now and as of recently. This part of my life is really the most important thing in my life. It's what I was created to do. It's what I'm hardwired for. It's what you're hardwired for. It's what you were created to do. According to the Bible, this uh, uh, topic that we're going to talk about is, is what God is seeking. What am I talking about? I mentioned already in the service, but I'm talking about worship. I'm talking about worship. Worship is a word that sometimes makes Christians nervous. At least for me growing up, you know, we, 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 the word worship, we just associate it with, with, with just kind of this chaotic frenzy in, in, in certain charismatic churches. And we, we just it made, we didn't like using the word. We'd say, oh, we're going to have our singing time. And, and really, the word worship is a biblical word. There's nothing wrong with the word worship. We're made to worship. That is what we're supposed to do. That's what God is seeking. It's defined in the dictionary as the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration. Worship. I just spoke to my life in, in worship, and, and like I said, for so long I was missing out. Really, I, didn't, I thought I was worshiping. I, I thought that me just standing up and, and, and singing out of a hymnal, uh, uh, just kind of going with emotions, was worship. And by the way, that's not the church's fault, the hymnal's fault, the song's fault, the, the song leader's fault. Listen, if the song leader was as dead as yesterday's roadkill, that's not my problem. And that's not his problem. Listen, that's not up to me. My worship is up to my heart. I was missing out, though. And I spent many years leading singing and just getting fired up. I was missing out. I thought I had it figured out. I mean, the louder I sing, and if I wave my arms enough and smile big and, man, draw it out of them, and then that, that's real worship. And, and for me personally, this is not anybody that was singing the song, but me personally, it was empty. I'd always been a part of my life. Man, I grew up singing the songs of God. I grew up in church. I didn't feel like things were out of place. I didn't think I had it all messed up. I was kind of ignorant to it. God recently has been showing me more about my worship to Him and, and, and just how, how real is it, how genuine is it in my life. Always full of good intentions, like I said. Man, I just wanted to have a good service and, and I wanted to please God. But a lot of it was empty. I didn't even realize it was somewhat empty. Can't go back and change that, like I said, but I'm trying to change it now. It's the most important thing in my life. God is seeking that from our lives, true worship. John 4, 23 and 24, we're going to hit the verses before all this, but I want to show you this verse. It says, but the hour cometh. This is Jesus speaking. And now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The work of God is to seek real worshipers. He sent Jesus to accomplish that work. That is, that is what God is seeking for. That is His work, to seek out real, true 
worshipers. Jesus came to do that, turning sinners into worshipers, turning followers of the world into followers of God, showing the love of God to those who don't even want it is what Jesus came to do. Giving, giving your life so others can have life abundant. That's what Jesus did. He gave his life. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. That is why he came. His life, his death, his resurrection make it possible for us, for me, for you, lowly sinners with no hope. What Christ did makes it possible for us to become real worshipers of God. He bridges the gap between us and the Father. To become the chosen of God, born of the Spirit, the Bible says in John 3. And we see this work of God through Jesus and through the life of Jesus clearly and wonderfully in John chapter 4. I'll have the verses on the, on the screen, but I want to, if you have your Bible, you can go to John 4. We're going to be in the first uh, few verses here. We're just going to go through the passage today and just see what God says, what the Bible says about real true worship, the kind of worship that God is seeking after. Okay, the first uh, two verses, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he, he must needs uh, go through Samaria. That's verse 3. That's verse 3. Most Jews, you probably heard a message on this before, the verse, he must needs go through Samaria, and, and uh, what was preached was probably exactly what I'm about to say, is that most people uh, uh, went around Samaria. Most Jews went around Samaria. They didn't want to go uh, right to Galilee. The easiest, quickest way was, was right through Samaria, but most of them went around. And by the way, every word and every phrase in the Bible is there for a reason. There's a reason why, there's a reason why uh, verse number three, uh, verse number four is there when it says he must needs go through Samaria. See, like I said, the quickest way to Galilee where Jesus was headed was through Samaria, but but most people went around. He went. It says he must go through it. He had to go through it. There was a reason why the Jews took the long route around it, way up through the mountains and around Samaria to get to Galilee. It was because of who the Samaritans were and what they represented. I want to give you a tiny little history lesson here. The Samaritans, they were the remnant of the northern Jewish kingdom. And these people had intermarried with foreigners uh, like 800 years before when they were carried into exile, we know the, the, the captivities in the Old Testament, like 800 years before all this, the, the leaders of the northern Jewish kingdom intermarried with some of the foreigners and uh, had, had just kind of created their own people group. They'd built their own separate place of worship on their own mountain, and they rejected all of the Old Testament law, all the Old Testament except for uh, their own version of the first five books of, of Moses, the Pentateuch, that, that is who they were. So you think, about, you think about the Old Testament and just the importance of keeping the law of God, and the importance of the Old Testament before Christ came, uh, especially for those people, and how this, these Samaritans, the people of Samaria, man, they had their own version of the first five books. They had their own place of worship. They rejected all the other teachings of the Old Testament. So there was some strong, strong animosity between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. So that's why they went around the long way, but Jesus was different. He had to go through there. Verse number uh, uh, 5 says, Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being weary with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Jesus knew 
what was coming next. He got, he took his journey. The disciple had, had gone to the city for food, so he's there by himself. He sits here on Jacob's well, this obviously very historical place for the, for the people here in Bible times, Jacob's well, a pretty important spot. And Jesus just sits down on it, which by the way, for me, I read that, I'm like, you know, it's just like Jesus, son of God, to take the, the, the traditions and the formalism of man and what we sometimes set up as idols in our Christianity oftentimes, and he just sits right on it and says, no, it's about me. It's about Christ. And he sits on this well. He knew what was coming next. He, he knew who was coming next. We know the story. Verse 7 says, There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. So this woman comes, this lady comes to draw water, and Jesus is there on the well. And he just flat out, he walks right into this hostile place, this place of hostility. The animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans was strong. He walks right into it and starts a conversation. No holding back, no beating around the bush, no like, no, he just says, hey, give me a drink. He does the unthinkable. Not only does he talk to this Samaritan woman, but he asks her to get him some water. Other Jews would be disgusted by such a request. You're going to let her handle your, your water, your bucket? Are you serious? Not Jesus. He saw beyond her history. He saw beyond her personal past. Not just of her people, but he saw beyond who she really was that we're going we're to look at in a minute. He saw beyond all that. He had a plan for this woman. He wanted to turn this woman, this Samaritan woman, into a real worshiper of God. Verse number 8 says, For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, how is it that thou, being a Jew, asketh drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Even, even she was shocked. You know, she knew the history of her people. She knew, she knew the, the struggle and the strife between their, their two uh, groups of people. It was common knowledge. But Jesus doesn't even directly answer her question. But he surprised her even more instead with his next statement, and that's in verse number 10. After she said, why are you even talking to me? You, you know, you guys don't talk to us. Verse 10 he doesn't answer the question. He just says, listen, Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou would have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. He turned it back and says, What's really amazing, lady, is that you're not asking me for a drink. Instead of the other way around, let me ask you that. That's what's, that's what's amazing. And he calls it the gift of God, and living water is what he calls it when he's talking to her. But this lady is... She's just not really getting it. She's not, it's not really making sense to her. You know, you think about the Samaritan woman. Her background doesn't really lend itself to, like, this keen spiritual insight. You know, obviously, her, her, their religion and their, they reject all this. She just, she's not getting it. Her response shows just kind of how little she's understanding Jesus here. You think about her spirit. Her spirit is dead. She's not saved. She was still enslaved to her flesh, only concerned with the external parts of, of her life. Because look what she says in verse 11. She says, The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou uh, that living water? Art thou now greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? She kind of said, You don't even have a bucket. You know, how are you supposed to draw if you don't have a bucket? What makes you think your water is better than Jacob's well? You know, if it, if it worked for Jacob and his family, then it works for me. She's just totally missing the whole thing here. She's like, he's talking about living water, the gift of God. She's like, we don't even have a bucket. <laughs> she, she's kind of missing it here. 
Now, at this point, at least me, and most of us would be rolling our eyes and getting ready to kind of like, well, okay, well, it was great talking with you. I'll grab some water the next well. Have a nice day, but not Jesus. The situation and the conversation seems hopeless, really. She's just not getting it, but Jesus does not give up, not him. In verse number 13, he says this, And Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. Talk about the water there at Jacob's well. They're still thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. So he's just taking the time to just try to help this Samaritan woman understand what he's trying to say. What is this living water? What is it? Could it be the wisdom that, that, that comes from God, that we can ask God for wisdom? And Is it that? In Proverbs, it talks about uh, uh, wisdom being a fountain of life and, and kind of springing up within us. Is that what he's talking about? Perhaps. More than likely, it's, it's what Jesus mentioned in John 7. Look at John 7 on the screen. It says, in the last day Jesus is talking, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the Spirit of God, that living water. Everybody on this earth, everybody on this earth is suffering from an inner thirst. All of us. All of us are suffering from an inner thirst. We're craving something. We're looking for satisfaction from something. As believers, as lost people, we're searching for something. Many don't even know what it is that they really want. So they fill it with everything that looks appealing or that, that, that might satisfy that inner thirst. Relationships, money, people want stuff. Some people turn to drugs or alcohol, sex, friend, more friends, uh, a family, a career, and they're looking for something to satisfy that inner thirst, that inner craving. There's a, a, a really powerful interview with uh, Tom Brady, the quarterback of the Patriots, from several years back after winning like four or five Super Bowls, I can't remember how many had won, and they're talking to him, and they're like, you know, hey, you know, how do you feel after winning four or five Super Bowls? Oh my goodness gracious, you were, you know, this this late in the draft pick, and you know what's happened in your life and the career that you've had, and 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 Tom Brady, man, I love Tom Brady. He's, he's I hope he stays. I'm telling you, but Tom Brady, on camera, says, you know. He's like, yeah, I understand, like, all these wins, and he's always looking for the next ring. That, that's his big thing. He's like, hey, what's your favorite one? He's like, oh, the next one's my favorite Super Bowl win or whatever. Tom Brady says, you know, I, I, all this that, that I've been able to accomplish, he said, but there's got to be something more. Tom Brady says there's got to be something more than, than this. <laughs> we know what that is. Everybody, even Tom Brady, one of the, one of the most popular guys on the planet, Man, obviously, talk about a guy with some victories, you know, in his career. Amazing. Got money. Got all this, all this stuff. He said, there's got to be something more. That inner thirst can only truly be quenched by what Jesus came to give. That's right. Living water in the form of the Holy Spirit of God. Listen, it's the Spirit of God, the Bible says, who quickens us, who brings us from death unto life, out of the pit onto a solid rock. Not only does the Spirit quench that thirst in us, but then He uses us, like Jesus told the woman, as a fountain of life to show others the thirst-quenching power of the Spirit of God instead of us just searching for a satisfied life in others. Man, it's almost like we suck the life out of everything around us looking for, looking for satisfaction, 
looking for something to quench that inner thirst that we have and we look for in everything else. But it's Jesus who gives us living water, that Spirit of God that quickens us and turns us from death into life. So then we, not only do we have our thirst quenched, not only are we saved and, and can live in the gospel, but now God can use us as a fountain of life to help others find that living water. Hallelujah for that. I think both those answers, I think both the answers to the wisdom from God and the Spirit of God. Listen, Jesus' wisdom satisfies your thirst and makes you a fountain of life, and the Holy Spirit of God satisfies your thirst and makes you a fountain of life. Jesus always kept the, the Spirit and the Word together. You know, they worship, must worship in spirit and in truth. John 14, 26, Jesus says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. There's that wisdom. He shall teach you all things and bring all things to remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. The work of the Spirit of Christ is to make the Word of God clear in our soul and in our mind and satisfying in our soul. That's, listen, it's not just about me being an intellectual, because I'm not <laughs> at all. It's the Spirit of God that shows me, that speaks to my heart through the words of God, the living words of God. Listen, this is not just... It's not just dead, powerless facts. Spirit and the Word come together to quench that inner spiritual thirst and make us a fountain of life. Isn't that awesome? I mean, that's what we have. That's what we're privileged to have in our lives, in our souls, that living water from God. The Word of promise, the, the Word of God, the truth, and the power of the Spirit or that living water that's offered to, the, offered to the Samaritan woman at the well. That is that living water he's talking about. Listen, I don't know about you, but that, that thought encourages me and, and drives me to worship because, I don't know about you, I, don't you ever feel unworthy to stand before God, to be a child of God? Don't you ever feel uh, like me, like a, just like a spiritual bomb? Like, man, I'm just missing, I'm just missing something here. Amen. Like, how could God ever use me to reach others? How could God ever use me to be the pastor of any church? But the, the event, the, the story, the, the, the factual story in John 4 reminds us that Jesus is at work in the lives of those who seem hopeless. Amen. That's good. Who seem like they have nothing to offer. Those who constantly doubt themselves. That's who Jesus is working in the lives of. Hallelujah for that. He's making them, he's making us into a fountain of life for others. He's making us into real worshipers. But even after all that, she's still not really getting it. <laughs> this poor lady. She's not really getting it. Look at verse 15. It says, The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. She still thinks it's, it's actual like drinking water, like I could drink my coffee. She goes, Hey, if you give it to me, I won't be thirsty. I don't have to come back to this well anymore. It'll save me the trip. This is great. Listen, we for sure would have given up at this point. We would have been like, okay, well, you know, here, I'll give you a cup of water, and, and God, here's a track, I'll leave you with a track, and I'm going to go now. But not Jesus, and, and neither should we. She was so carnally minded. She was so worldly minded. She, she still couldn't see past her physical senses, the fact of that actual thirst. See, you talk about water enough, you get thirsty sometimes. This lady's obviously actually thirsty. And she couldn't see past it. She still thought... He was talking about actual water to drink, but Jesus wanted to make a worshiper out of this woman, a worshiper in spirit and in truth. So he touches now on the most sensitive, the most vulnerable spot of her life. Verse 16, 
Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. Jesus knew the story. Jesus knew what was going to happen next. Hey, the quickest way to the heart is through a wound. The quickest way to the heart is through a wound. Why does Jesus go there? Why, why, why into this innermost part of this woman's life? Because the verses say, and we're going to read them in a minute, but she's got, she didn't have a husband. She's had five husbands. The one she's with now, the one she's sleeping with now isn't even her husband. Jesus knows that. So why does he go there? John 3.20, I'll tell you why. He said this in John 3.20, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Concealed sin keeps us from seeing the light of Christ. Let that thought sink into your heart. Let it sink into your mind. Concealed, hidden sin keeps us from seeing the light of Christ. This lady came. Obviously, probably not, no one's just going to bring that up, but Jesus does. Gets that vulnerable spot in her heart. Sin is like a spiritual leprosy, church. It, 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 it deadens our senses. And, and we, it just rips us to shreds, and we don't even feel it. We don't even know it. That's what sin does to us. Unconfessed, hidden sin, concealed sin. It, it, like Samson, remember it says he wished out that the Lord had departed from him? He's got no more strength left. He didn't even realize that spirit had left him. And that's what our sin does to us. We walk through this life. We walk through this fallen world thinking we got it all together. But there's hidden sin in our lives. And we're not seeing Christ for who he really is. We live like that, so consumed with our sin, ignoring the destructive nature of sin. Whatever it is, whether it's anger or laziness or hatred or pornography, unforgiveness, whatever it may be, we ignore it. We, we, we lose feeling almost. Our, our senses are just are deadened because of sin. We get so, we've gotten so used to the guilt, it's, it barely even affects us anymore. Be guilty for a minute, you sin, you lash out, you get angry at your wife, your kids, you know, you get on the internet and look at something you shouldn't look at, look at pornography, whatever it may be, and you feel bad for a minute, but then, you know, an hour later, you're, you know, working or doing this or eating dinner or whatever, you don't need... The guilt just, it barely affects you. How can, how can we really worship God? Church, think about this. How can we really worship God when we're living like a spiritual zombie? Hey, we may have life. Hey, we may be saved. But man, we have this concealed sin in our lives. We're just walking around, going through the motions like a spiritual zombie. We have a home in heaven. Man, praise God for that. We have a home in heaven, but we're willf willfully imprisoned down here in this fallen world willfully in prison. Bless you, Mom. Listen, that's how we live. We're enslaved to our sin. We're enslaved and in bondage to our flesh, even though Christ died to defeat it. We don't see it. But Christ, in this story, has his sights set on this woman's conversion. He he, he, listen, what he does is he, he just opens the door to her sin. In love opens the door and right to on that, that spiritual leprosy that we just talked about that just kind of, and he goes right into it. And she said, in verse 17, he said, uh, let's see, I can go back one. Go back to, here it is. Yeah, verse 17, the woman answered and said, I have no, uh, uh, I have, one more, there it goes. I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, thou hast well said I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands. And he whom thou know now, now hast is not thy husband. In that thou says truly, he said, yeah, you've had five husbands. 
and made her sleep with now is not your husband. And he just kind of sits there. <laughs> he didn't say it like a jerk. It's not Jesus, it's not who he is. He's just being honest and upfront. He's trying to turn this woman into a real worshiper. And he goes on in verse 19. He says, The woman, uh, uh, Jesus saith unto, I'm sorry, I want, I want one too many. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now listen, just, just think about it. I never thought about this until I was studying this up and reading some things about it. This right here is, is proof of the, the universal, the worldwide reflex of a person trying to avoid conviction. So Jesus says, yeah, you've, got, you've had five husbands and one you're with now is not your husband. And she, and she says in verse 19, wow, you're, you're a prophet. You know a lot of stuff, you know. And she goes, wow, instead of dealing with her guilt, she just tries to kind of bring Jesus into this academic controversy. Now she goes, oh, you're a prophet? So well, where, where do you stand on the issue of where people should worship? She just jumps right to that. Verse 20, she says, Our fathers worship in, the, in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And she just totally ignores what he had just said. You know, you, listen, you've heard it said, I, I, I saw this quote, a trapped animal will chew his own leg off. You ever heard that before? Well, a trapped sinner will, will mangle his own mind and just totally tear up the rules of logic and discourse and conversation. And that's what this lady did. He brings up her sin and her past and and she just says, oh, wow, you know, as long as we're speaking about my five husbands, uh, what's your stance on the issue of where people should worship? <laughs> you know, she just totally just kind of goes right over that. But Jesus, in his grace, you know, he never goes back. He never goes back to her adultery. He doesn't, he, he knows what she's doing. He knows the game that she's playing, but he doesn't go back. He, he had mentioned enough and talked enough to, to get his foot in the door of her heart. And he recognizes her, her feeble attempts at, at changing the conversation. So he uses that, what she just brought up, to accomplish his work of turning into a true worshiper of God and spirit and in truth. In verse 21, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. He says, Lady, that, that controversy that you're bringing up, that controversy, that can't compare in importance to how you worship and who you worship. How and whom you worship are way more important than where. By the way, that doesn't mean I'm belittling our public and corporate worship in church. I'm not saying that at all. That, that is vastly important. So important that I'm literally next week's message is going to be all about our worship as a church. That's going to be my whole message next week is just how I want our church, how I believe God wants our church to worship Him. But Jesus in this story is telling the woman that worship isn't just Something outward, something external that you accomplish by going to a specific place like the temple or the mountain. It's not the location that makes an act of authentic, real worship. It's not the location. Remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees? Listen, they said their, their worship was in vain is what Jesus said about the, their, their worship. Because their lips may speak to me, but their heart is far from me. So they, they were worshiping, but it was all in vain. Listen, worship is first and foremost an experience of the heart. Worship is first and foremost an experience of the heart. Prayer without heart is vain. Songs that we sing, that you sing, songs without heart are vain. Listen, sermons without heart are vain. Listen, your offering without heart, without a heart of genuine worship is vain. Worship is first and foremost an experience of the heart. How you worship is so much more important than where. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell this woman. 
In verse, in verse 22, he, he had said, um, ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. And, and by the way, he's, he's lovingly, telling, lovingly telling her there that she's been wrong about her worship, about the Samaritan people. Listen, it may seem insensitive and, and kind of arrogant to tell someone that everything they've always believed in their life, their whole life is false and not real worship, but, but it's not insensitive and arrogant. Biblical worship is true worship, and anybody else's is false. Like, and that's not, again, that's not out of arrogance. That's, we have to, do we really believe the Bible? Listen, if you, have, if you have humbly bowed to the truth of God's word and the truth of God, trying to persuade somebody else to bow with you is not arrogance. It's love. Amen. That's, right. that's what it is. This woman and her people, the Samaritans, they had rejected all the Old Testament except for their own version of the first five books. She had, listen, their knowledge of God, their knowledge of God and, their, and spiritual things was incredibly deficient, which means her worship was deficient. Do you understand what I'm saying there? So it wasn't, it wasn't mean and rude of Jesus to say, hey, you don't even know what you worship. Right. He was just lovingly telling her, hey, i got to help you. I'm helping you here. To tell her that, and for you to lovingly and gently tell others that is as loving as telling somebody with lung cancer to stop smoking. Listen, you're trying to, to bring life to people. You're trying to help uh, with the power of Christ turn these sinners into real worshipers of God. And they can't just do whatever they want and believe whatever they want and not choose not to believe in God and just have a home in heaven and have a relationship with Christ. It doesn't work that way. Biblical worship is true worship and everything else is false. It tells her, in verse 21 and 22, that true worship is from within. And it must be based on a true viewpoint, a true perception of God. That's what he's telling her. She didn't view God the right way in her, in her religion. She was missing it. And that's, listen, that's often why our worship is so deficient. That's why there's church all across the country whose worship, they think they're doing everything right, but it's deficient. We don't, really see, we don't see God as he really is. We don't see God as He really is. We don't see what God has done in our lives. We often just see what in our minds that He hasn't done. That's what we focus on. We forgive all that He has done. Instead, we get grumpy and upset and sad and depressed about what He has. Well, God just isn't doing this for me. And our worship is deficient. It's lacking. We sing, you know, holy is the Lord, God Almighty, with less emotion than we sing happy birthday at a kid's party. That's deficient worship. You really, you really think that God is pleased with that? That, that, that we're doing anything? We're just, we're just going through the motions. That's not true biblical worship. And we're going to talk more about that next week. But in this story, Jesus is trying to, to, to show her, listen, your perception of God is flawed. Your worship is flawed. Verse 23, he says, The hour cometh, and now is, and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is the Spirit, and they that worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Those two words, spirit and truth, listen, that is the, the how and the whom of who we worship, of our worship. Worshiping in spirit is the opposite of just that outward show, that external worship. It's the opposite of just traditionalism and formalism. Singing, singing this certain set list of songs just because it's what we've always done. Just, just for tradition's sake. Listen, worshiping in spirit is the opposite of that, just for that reason. And again, that doesn't mean we don't sing. We sang Blessed Assurance this morning. Praise the Lord. It's a great song. Amen. 
but not just because I've always sang it. Not just because uh, Brother So-and-So sang it. No, it's because, listen, that song speaks to the assurance we have in Christ. That is why we sang it. Listen, on our formalism, oftentimes churches, even Baptist churches, they almost worship in a Catholic way to where it's so formal and you can't move and you better keep your hands down. Don't raise a hand up. You might make people nervous. And we think about that in our lives and we've just grown so accustomed to that that if we do do something like that, we feel uncomfortable. But that's not because it's wrong. It's because that's what we are used to. We have to be careful not to fall into that trap. And again, that's going to be more on next week. But, but that's what he's saying, worshiping in spirit. It's the opposite of just that external uh, worship of traditional formalism. Worshiping in truth is the opposite of worship based on an inadequate view of God. We just talked about that a moment ago. That she didn't have a proper view of God and, 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 and of the Bible. Listen, that, 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 that worshiping in truth is the opposite of that. Listen, the words spirit and truth together mean that real worship comes from the spirit within and is based on true views of God. Worship must have heart and worship must have head. Worship must engage your emotions. It should engage your emotions and worship must engage your thoughts. Again, we're going to talk about this next week, but nothing wrong with emotions. People want to cry, well, it's just too emotional. What's the big deal? I'm sorry if I'm thinking about what God's done in my life that I get stirred up a little bit. I mean, that I shed a tear, that I lift a hand because of what God has done for me. True worship uh, uh, has emotions and engages your emotions and, it, and engages your thought. Truth without emotion, okay, it produces dead orthodoxy in a church full of unspiritual fighters. That, that's what truth without the spirit is, without emotion. Hey, we may have all the right songs and everything is, is right down the line, but we got to make sure there's no emotion in this at all. Listen, that, that's, just, that's just boring church is what that is. Okay? Emotion, though, without truth, it produces just an empty chaos. Listen, there's cults all across the world of people jumping around and dancing around and, and speaking in tongues and all this stuff. Listen, that's a lot of emotion without truth. Right. Well, wishy-washy group of believers who don't want to think deeply about anything. Listen, that, that's not right either. Listen, it's bad on both sides. It's together in spirit and in truth. True worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. That is true worship. That is what it means when Jesus says, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what it's talking about. Deeply emotional. Love, deep, and sound doctrine is truth in the spirit together. Think of it like a, like a furnace. The, the, the fuel of your worship is the truth of a gracious, sovereign God. That's the fuel. The furnace, where, where, where it all comes together, is your spirit, who you are, your spirit. The fire that, that burns that fuel in the furnace is the spirit of God, the quickening power of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's the fire. The Bible says our God is a consuming fire. And the heat that is produced from the fire burning that fuel in that furnace, the heat of worship shows up in our affections, our reverence to God, our adoration of Him, our, our godly sorrow, our trust in Him, uh, our joy, our gratitude, our hope. That is the heat of our worship, all produced from everything else we just talked about, from the fire, from the in our in the furnace of who we are, the fuel of our worship, the truth, the the, the truth that God is sovereign, that He is gracious, 
the fuel of worship, the knowledge of God, doesn't just automatically produce heat all by itself, just knowing about God and believing in God. That doesn't just produce an abundant Christian life. No, it takes the fire of the precious Holy Spirit of God. Verse uh, 23, we had said, worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. Uh, That's what it says. I believe that means the Spirit of God working in our spirit. Before the Spirit moved in, church, I was dead. I was dead in my sins. My spirit, there really was no spirit in me at all. It was just the flesh. But when the Spirit of God, when I accepted Christ and believed on Him and placed my faith in Him, He quickened my spirit. He brought it to life. Jesus tells Nicodemus in in, in John chapter 3, that which is born of the Spirit, the Spirit is spirit. That's what He told Nicodemus in John 3. So true worship only comes from those whose spirit has been quickened and brought to life by the Spirit. So here, here it is in a nutshell. The fuel of worship is the grand truth of a gracious and sovereign God. The fire that makes the fuel burn uh, hot and white hot is the quickening of the Holy Spirit. The furnace that's made alive and warm by the flame of truth is, is our renewed spirit. That's who we are, our renewed spirit in Christ. And the resulting heat of our affections is worship. Showing itself in the tears that we shed when we're singing about God. Uh, our openness about ourselves and God's grace in our lives. That's the heat of our worship. Our prayers, our praises, our our lifting of hands, our bowing humbly before God, our obedient lives to the King, that's the heat of our worship. And the woman finally starts to understand all this in verse 25. said in verse 25, The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Listen, verse 27, it's uh, these next verses. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou? Or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Jesus made a real worshiper, the kind of worshiper that God is seeking for out of that Samaritan harlot. And listen, it's our duty to be a real worshiper and to share the gospel of Christ with others so that others can be real worshipers. That's our mission. That is our calling. Later on, we see the disciples, they had come back and they had gotten their food and they're eating with the Lord and they asked, they said, hey, master, eat. And, and he, says, he, he says something along the lines of, well, I already ate meat that you don't know about. And again, they're missing it too. They're like, well, did someone else give him food? They're looking around like, hey, did somebody give him something? And he says in verse 34, do you say that? My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. That is what he had just done. He had just fulfilled the work of God for his life here on earth. The work of God is to seek real worshipers. And Jesus was sent to accomplish this work. So we see this whole John chapter 4, this whole interchange between him and this Samaritan woman we read about is is the work of God in Jesus seeking a real worshiper. And he challenges us in the next verse. Say not ye, there are yet four months and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. There's a need. And we, we have got, as a church, as individuals, we have got to get back to the heart of real 
genuine worship. I taught, we sang about it today, that heart of worship. It's all about you. I'm sorry for what I've made it. Listen, I tell, I'm sorry for what I've made it over the years of my life. Just emptiness. We gotta be true worshipers that God is seeking. We gotta show Jesus, that's our whole series. Showing Jesus through our worship. Show Jesus to others so that they can be real worshipers too. They can be true worshipers too. We'll never worship God in spirit and in truth until we realize two things. We need to realize who God really is, and we need to realize who we really are. I mean, if you daily live that and those truths of who God really is and who we really are, we are nothing without Him. We're nothing without Him. He is everything. If we live that way, then we'll be true worshipers of God. Real worship is born out of a proper view of God and an honest view of ourselves. God is everything, and we're nothing without Him. You've got to believe that, church. I want us to know what real worship is in spirit and in truth. And next week, I said, I'm going to share my heart next week. I've been studying. I've been praying, asking God. And I, want, I, want to, I want to talk about what God is showing me about our worship here at Coastline. And it's been awesome so far. But listen, we're just starting out. I, I want our church to really authentically, genuinely worship God in our public and corporate worship. We're going to talk about that next week about our worship in our church. But let's, let's go out today. Let's go out this week. Let's live our lives. Live lives of true worship. Like I said, worship is not just about being at church and singing some songs. It, that's part of it. That is worship when we sing the songs of God to Him and worship Him. But worship goes beyond just a song. It goes just beyond a church building. It's our lives. It's casting down idols in our lives. Listen, there, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Listen, it's about worshiping in spirit and in truth, knowing who God is and knowing who we are. We're going to pray, and then we're going to sing out this song once more, The Heart of Worship. I want you to think about what we talked about today. Think about the words that we sing it. I want you to make it a prayer to the Lord as we sing it. And so let's pray together, ask God to bless, and we're going to sing this song. And Lord, we love you. We need you. Would you please help us, God? Would you help us, Lord, to, to worship you in a real way, in an authentic way? Help it to be in spirit and in truth. Lord, help us to show emotion when we sing, Lord. Help us not to just be just, just dead in our hearts, Lord, and just going through the motions and trying to get through things. And Lord, we are here to worship you. We're created to worship. We were made to worship. Lord, you please bless us, Lord. Would you help us? Help it to be real in our hearts. Lord, bless us as we sing this song. Help us think about what it means and help us to worship you. Lord, help us to be that real worshiper that you're seeking for. Help us to seek our own hearts even right now, God. And our own hearts just ask you, Lord, am I missing something? Am I missing something in my worship? Has it just been very empty? Have I just treated our, 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 our worship time as just kind of part of the service and that's really it and just kind of get through it to the message? Or has it been real? Lord, I want it to be real. We need you, Lord. Would you bless us as we sing in your precious name?